0: From Albany Public Library in Albany, New York, I'm Ryan Slowey. This is the Albany Made Podcast. In today's episode, APL Executive Director Scott Jarzombek speaks with Assistant Professor at University at Albany's College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity Sam Jackson about his new book, Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group, and the broader culture of anti-government and white supremacist extremist groups in America. In a recent article published in the New York Times, journalist Alan Fuhr writes about an uncovered plot by the Oath Keepers in which they strategized to smuggle, quote, heavy weapons to the site of the Capitol insurrection in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, and underwent preparations for, quote, urban warfare, riot control, and rescue operations long before the election of President Joe Biden. Three members of the group are now facing charges of conspiracy, including far-right militia leader Thomas Edward Caldwell. In this interview, Jackson broadens the scope of what we know so far about the inner workings of the Oath Keepers organization.
1: I'm here today with Sam Jackson. He is a professor in the CEHC program at SUNY Albany. His book is called Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government group. And it's by Columbia University Press. And hopefully the second run, it'll be the second run. Yeah. Yeah. The second run. Hey, that's be proud. The second run is coming soon. You've been published a bunch. You have a bunch of peer-reviewed articles about right-wing extremism and the militia movement in the United States. How did this become the subject that you decided that you really wanted to dedicate some of your academic life to?
2: I can actually go back to my time as an undergrad. I did my undergrad degree at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and I was a religious studies major. And I accidentally took a class on religion and violence. I didn't realize that that was the class until the first day of <laughs> that I showed up in the room. And it was really interesting. This would have been 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. So this was still in the the sort of heyday of thinking about jihadi terrorism and Al-Qaeda and, and those sorts of folks. So we did a lot of reading about those um, types of actors, and we read a little bit about some religious extremism and terrorism in the U.S., primarily the more historical variety, thinking about anti-abortion violence, especially in the 90s, I would say, is, is, was our focus. And I realized over the course of that class and, and over the next couple of years that I really wanted to know more about the contemporary right-wing extremism scene in the U.S. And over a course of time, I was doing a whole lot of reading on the subject, and I realized that we know a decent bit about right-wing extremism that's organized around racial identity. There's been a lot of scholarship about racism, especially what I call ideological racism, that the sort of big examples of racism, like the KKK and neo-Nazis and those sorts of actors. But it seemed to me that there were some right-wing extremists who didn't explicitly organize around a white racial identity that we didn't really know very much about. In the 90s, what I call the Patriot slash Militia Movement emerged after some really violent uh, interactions between law enforcement and Americans in Idaho and in Texas um, with the Ruby Ridge and the Waco standoffs. And the militia movement kind of just burst to the scene. And much of what we knew about the movement from the 90s came from activists and watchdog organizations who did really important work, but work that I didn't find particularly intellectually satisfying especially because there are so many complicated tendrils that come out from the Patriot Militia Movement and go into some of these other forms of right-wing extremism, like white supremacy, or like Islamophobia, or forms of nativism. So fast forward to 2013, I started my PhD at Syracuse University, and I knew that I wanted to study some form of anti-government extremism as I was thinking of it. This was a few years after the Tea Party emerged, and we had seen a pretty prolific explosion of these armed Americans who were angry about government and who were, it seemed to me, eager to get in some sort of violent conflict with government. And I was trying to decide between a few specific topics, and ultimately, thanks to some very good advice, which in hindsight seems almost uh, prophetic in its goodness. Some of my mentors encouraged me to focus on Oath Keepers rather than some of the other topics that I was thinking about. So I spent a couple years thinking about Oath Keepers a lot, reading a lot of their content, watching a lot of their YouTube videos, and the book emerged from that.
1: Do you want to talk about the Three Percenters just a little bit? We hear a lot about the Proud Boys, which is a Western chauvinist group that has a lot of other strange tendencies around it. And, you know, you have people like the Boogaloo Boys, which, I mean, just the name alone is like the strangest story ever. But the 3%ers, there are some aspects of the 3%ers that's really concerning. And that has to do with experience and, and past careers and things that they were involved in.
2: In late 2019, I wrote a report for the International Center for Counterterrorism at The Hague called A Schema of Right-Wing Extremism in the United States. And in that report, I argue that there are three main categories. There is racist extremism, which is, again, the the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis and those sorts of folks. There's a closely related category, which um, I call nativist extremism. These are folks who aren't necessarily organized around a racial identity, but maybe they have like a cultural identity that functions very similarly to a racial identity, Islamophobes. People who are worried about illegal immigrants coming uh, across the US Mexico border, these kinds of folks. And then the third category is anti government extremism. And I'm not going to spend too much time going into the details of that categorization schema, but it's worth noting that I argue that these are three distinct analytical categories, but there's substantial overlap between them. So we've got those three main categories. Anti government extremism is the one that I focus on and is where Oath Keepers lies. But there are a couple of different important subcategories within anti-government extremism. One subcategory is the Patriot Militia Movement, and the other one is the Sovereign Citizen Movement. And once again, just like with the main categories of right-wing extremism, there's substantial overlap in practice between those two. But it helps me at least to make sense of the extremist landscape to make an analytical distinction. So now Patriot Militia (laughs) Movement. I see two main factions within the Patriot Militia Movement. I am just a, a huge fan of categorizing and subcategorizing things, as you can tell. And the, the two main factions of the Patriot Militia Movement are Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. Oath Keepers is the one that I focused on in some uh, ways because of the organizational structure. Oath Keepers is an organization, they have leadership, they have people who have at various times been responsible for editing their website or for interacting with media. So it's pretty easy to make sense of them as an organization. Three percenters is much more challenging. There is no one three percenters group. Instead, three percenters is a movement where I've even heard some of my colleagues describe it as a, a sort of not even an ideological framework, but like in a rhetorical framework or almost even a meme that is used as the center of gravity for people who belong to the 3%ers. And it emerges from this guy named Mike Vanderbilt, who passed away a few years ago, who wrote about this idea of the 3%ers, where he referenced this unfounded historical claim that 3% of the people who lived in the British colonies that later became the United States, 3% of those residents took up arms to fight against the British in the War for Independence. Historians generally agree that, broadly speaking, a third of the residents supported independence, a third supported the British, and a third were a little bit more in the middle. But there's, to my knowledge, no breakdown of how many people actually actively fought. So the 3% claim seems to have come out of thin air. But Vanderbilt used it very effectively to say 3% of people rose up to fight against tyranny in the 18th century, and they defeated the most powerful army in the world then. Today, we're facing tyranny again, and if 3% of Americans today will rise up, we can defeat the most powerful army in the world once again. And then he actually tries to make his case even a little bit stronger, and he says, we don't need 3% of all Americans, we just need 3% of gun owners. And generally speaking, scholars think that there are around 100 million gun owners in the U.S., so 3 million people. If he can get 3 million people on his side, he thinks he can defeat tyranny.
1: It's often presented that Oath Keepers are former law enforcement and former military. How do those two groups intersect and seem to be often connected in media?
2: The connection comes from the fact that they espouse a lot of the same ideas, they talk about a lot of the same threats that they perceive, and they propose pretty similar solutions to those threats, which typically involves arming up and being ready to use a firearm against some government agent of tyranny. There are also sometimes ties between individual three-percenter groups and Oathkeeper chapters or between Oathkeepers as a whole. And I would imagine that there are also probably some people who are members of both Oathkeepers and one or more three-percenters groups. Mike Vanderbilt, the guy who popularized the three-percenters idea, was sometimes a fan and a friend of Oathkeepers. He spoke at some of their events, other times he would criticize them, and in particular the leader of Oathkeepers for various decisions that he disagreed with. One other thing you mentioned is that the background of people who are in Oath Keepers, and this is certainly something that Oath Keepers claims. They've said since day one that their priority was to try to recruit current and former law enforcement and military and encourage them to honor their oaths to the Constitution, this oath that law enforcement and military takes to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, right away, I want to make it clear that they have a very particular understanding of what honoring that oath means, and it's not one that I agree with. It's not one that I think most Americans would agree with, but that's that's been their goal. On the other hand, it's not really clear how much of their membership actually has that experience. I know that some of their members do. I know that some of their members don't, but I couldn't tell you whether most do or most don't.
1: There seems to be a real gear fetish when it comes to all of these groups. Three percenters have merch. I mean, I, I have yet to go somewhere where I didn't see someone wearing a three percenter shirt and thinking, I don't think they know 100% what they're wearing, or maybe they do and I'm just in a bad place. But it seems to be a real obsession with, with tactical gear and just guns in general. What did you see when you were looking at the Oath Keepers? Was there a connection there? Do you think there's a gun culture that now has become a more politicized culture?
2: That's a big question. Oath Keepers and many within the anti-government extremist milieu definitely are big gun folks. Oath Keepers has sometimes even tried to position itself as a group that is there to protect your gun rights. And they've said things like, we know that our message isn't going to convince all Americans, but if we try to orient ourselves around this idea of gun confiscation, that's how we're going to get the most Americans on our side when the crisis comes or or Twaki the end of the world as we know it when that arrives. So Oath Keepers definitely, their membership likes their expensive toys, their expensive pieces of metal that throw other pieces of metal at high velocity towards human beings potentially. They encourage their members to train with their weapons. Sometimes you'll hear about them going to basically like firearms summer camp or firearms weekend camp where they get a security consultant to teach them tactical Techniques and how to operate as a squad and clear houses door to door, like they're sort of almost LARPing the military experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. And on top of that, they also spend lots of money on what we might more generally think of as prepper gear and the prepper lifestyle. They have long encouraged their members to form what they call local alternative economies. They want people to move out of the city and into the country so they can be self sustaining. So again, when Teotihuacan happens, they can sort of sustain themselves and their community and their family and their friends. If you go on the Oath Keepers website, or at least if you did a couple of years ago, you would regularly see ads for prepper style food supplies that came in like five gallon buckets. And you would you could spend a thousand dollars on five gallon buckets of food and just tons of dried beans and, and rice and freeze dried food and all this kind of stuff. And you would also see um Even as late as, I want to say, November of last year, Oath Keepers would sometimes partner with firearms manufacturers, especially smaller ones, and ammunition manufacturers, mostly smaller ones, to offer their members discounts. Wow! So there's this really interesting intersection of commercialization and extremism. There's a great scholar, she's a professor at American University, Cynthia Miller Idris, She's looked at the commercialization of extremism in terms of fashion and the iconography on t-shirts and that sort of thing. The way she talks about commercialization is a little bit different than what I mean here.
1: They have merch like a band. It's frightening.
2: Exactly. And this stuff becomes expensive quickly.
1: Yes. Studying something like this, you've done a really deep dive. You've dedicated part of your life as an author. When you cover a topic like this, what is the mental and emotional toll of really doing a deep dive into this kind of world?
2: In a lot of ways, relative to some of my colleagues and friends who study this kind of thing, I had things easy in some ways. I didn't do field work. I didn't go to places where violence was happening or where firearms were being carried. I am a cis white man which means that I have all sorts of insulation from the kinds of harassment and trolling that women and people of color and all sorts of other non-white male categories, they all experience forms of harassment that I have never once experienced. So the the kinds of negative experiences that I had with studying this and with writing the book really sort of came down to the hours and hours that I would spend reading what they were writing and the hours and hours that I would spend transcribing Alex Jones' InfoWars videos when Oath Keepers would appear on his show. And you know, you you sort of, to do this kind of work, at least, I, I don't know if you have to, but my approach meant that I ended up immersing myself in this worldview for months and months and months. And it was what I thought about directly and explicitly for 30 or 40 hours a week. I'm just immersed in this. So when I turn my brain off to stop working, well, my brain doesn't really turn off and I don't really stop thinking about these things. And it sort of got to a point where I had to find the right kind of music to listen to while doing the work. For a while, I was listening to thunderstorm playlists because that was what was most effective in in allowing me to focus, but not sort of spiral into the content that I was having to consume. I could definitely see that I was starting to think differently. And it was sort of even almost in like a meta way, So the folks that I study are the kind of folks who, if they go out to eat, the man, almost always a man, won't sit with his back to the door because he wants to see the door because that's where the threat's going to come from if there's a threat. I think there's something harmful about even thinking about threats as that pervasive and that ubiquitous. I have this Totally unsubstantiated hunch that I've mentioned to a few of my colleagues at CEHC that too much preparedness is actually a bad thing and can have negative psychological and societal consequences. I don't know how to study that at all, but I'm... (laughs) In my bones, I'm convinced that it's true, and I think it's something that I started to sort of edge towards as I was spending more and more time reading Oathkeeper's material and, and reading things about the globalist cabal that's coming to steal your rights, or Obama's coming for your guns, or, or whatever other threat du jour they were talking about.
1: library world, we talk a lot about misinformation and there's a lot of, I wouldn't call it an excuse, but it seems like we always write it off as a problem of misinformation. In your studies, do you think some of the recruitment and retention is happening because of the spread of misinformation or do you think there's something more that the misinformation just kind of supports or attracts?
2: I think that depends in part on what you mean by misinformation. Typically, when I think of misinformation, I think of someone who is deliberately manipulating information in order to manipulate an audience. And many of the Oath Keepers really believe what they say and really believe the sorts of threats that they talk about. One of my goals for this project was to take Oath Keepers very seriously when they said something and to not assume that it was all just a lie and manipulation because I really think that that's not the case. I don't think that there's some hidden agenda behind Oath Keepers. Don't get me wrong. You can see a spectrum in the content that they produce from relatively reasonable and measured in the rhetoric and ideas. My favorite example of the sort of breathless hyperbole of threats is there was this special ops training mission um, in 2015 called Jade Helm 15. Yes. And a, a bunch of people were convinced that it was either tyranny coming to America or was a practice run for tyranny. And Oath Keeper's range of rhetoric about Jade Helm 15 was, we don't like the looks of this. We aren't quite sure what's going on, but it can't be good. They called it a PSYOP, psychological operation against America. They were convinced that it was this nefarious plot.
1: Something about turning Walmart into camps. I remember that. That that was because I thought that was... Some ridiculous statements.
2: It actually gets even better than that. There was one particular set of ideas about Walmart. Some people were convinced that WalMarts were actually being used to house underground railroad stations so that the government could ship dissident inmates from one place to another covertly.
1: From your perspective, if someone who's listening to this podcast is, you know, hopefully this next Thanksgiving, we're all at the table together again, or, yeah. or maybe Christmas, or maybe some of us will do Christmas in July. So we're going to see extended family members. And around those tables are always those conversations. And those conversations have gotten dark in recent years. If you find a member of your family or your extended family or your friends group, showing a tendency to move towards these organizations, what would your approach be? I mean, how would you how would you dissuade your 17-year-old cousin from wanting to join an organization like this?
2: That's a really difficult question. And unfortunately, I don't have what we might think of as actionable advice. One thing that we need to keep in mind is that people join... Groups like Oath Keepers and broader movements like the Patriot Militia Movement or anti government extremism more broadly for a bunch of different reasons. And we can't assume that they're joining for one particular reason. So within Oath Keepers, they might have some former military members who felt a sense of community and purpose when they were in the military. They leave the military. They're looking for that sense of community and purpose. They're having trouble finding it for whatever reason. Maybe there's an Oath Keepers chapter local for them that is advertising itself as a place where vets can get together and be members of the military again in terms of culture and practices. And they can go do things like what they would have done in the military for fun, like shooting ranges or or whatever the case may be. You also have people who maybe join the group because they're convinced that the federal government is coming to take their guns. And that's the thing that they care about. You might have other people who join Oath Keepers because of some of the so-called security operations that they've done or have promoted on the U.S.-Mexico border, because they're convinced that the greatest threat that America faces is so-called illegal immigrants crossing the border. There's this whole range of reasons that people might join Oath Keepers. And I think for some of those motivations, there are easier interventions or easier approaches to having conversations with those people than others. If someone's looking for community, maybe there's another community they can find. Maybe it's something as banal as Habitat for Humanity. If they're convinced that the government is coming for your guns, maybe it's about having a conversation with them about what do you think has been attempted over the past few years? Well, has that really been attempted? Let's go do some research. Maybe we can even go to our local library and do some research if, it's, uh, if we're back into non-COVID times. If it's a broader conversation, though, about tyranny and your... 17-year-old nephew is convinced that COVID was manufactured by the government so that Bill Gates could develop a vaccine so that he could inject you with some sort of nanotechnology to control you. That's really difficult to come back from and really difficult to combat. And those are the ones where really I'm I'm always looking for experts who focus more on bringing people out of these kinds of groups to share their wisdom about how to come back from that kind of thing. Because frankly, I I just don't know.
1: Any book, nonfiction or fiction, that you would suggest to introduce an individual outside of your books and your, your publications <laughs> that you that you think could also be read to kind of give somebody an overview of
2: this world? Which friend do I want to recommend? <laughs> so it's, it's not directly about this, but a sociologist named Ruth Bronstein wrote this book. It's either Prophets and Patriots or Patriots and Prophets. She looks at, in the early years of the Obama administration, she compares right-leaning activists and left-leaning activists and she tries to understand how they make sense of American politics and how American citizens should contribute to public life and what she finds is that the right-leaning activists who were affiliated with the Tea Party movement they had this conflictual understanding of politics where elected officials and civil servants are people who everyday American citizens need to constantly be watching over to make sure that they don't implement tyranny and she contrasts this with the left-leaning activists, which is uh, an interfaith group in her case, who have a cooperative understanding of politics, where elected officials and civil servants sometimes we disagree with them, but ultimately we're all working towards the public good. We're we're all trying to pursue the betterment of society, and we can be partners in that effort. That really helps me make sense of groups like Oath Keepers and Three Percenters maybe to a lesser extent, groups like Proud Boys and some of these other more bigoted organizations. But I really think that does a lot for me in making sense of why groups like Oath Keepers emerged when they did and why they have the sort of, why they engage in the rhetoric they engage in, why they engage in the actions they engage in, and also why they have been able to get the level of public support that they've got.
0: The Albany Made Podcast is a production of Albany Public Library in Albany, New York, produced by Ryan Slowey. You can find more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast apps. You can also listen on our YouTube page at Albany NY Library or on our website, albanypubliclibrary.org. You can find Jackson's book by visiting Columbia University Press at cup.columbia.edu. Thanks for listening. Thank